verse like this, if you can memorize it and meditate it, hide it in your heart, place it there as something that God will use to constantly draw us back, I think it can be a tremendous help in everyday living. Three things that I would like to accomplish this morning as we look at this text of Scripture. First of all, I want us to just simply... Mike? I am notorious for that. Did you hear? No. Is that, is that any better? The green light's on anyway. So there we go. Did anyone hear anything? You've been smiling here. I thought you were really enjoying that. Uh, did, did you hear what I had to say? Okay, good, good. I know you don't want me to repeat it, so. All right. All right, let's back up and look at it again. Three things that I'd like for us to accomplish here today in this particular verse of Scripture. We're going to really go back to chapter 1 and kind of survey it up to this point and finish up chapter 4 today. So it's a fairly broad stroke that we're looking at. But the first thing is to be able to examine and then rejoice in the treasure that God has given to us. It says here that we have, God's people, he's speaking to the children of God, particularly there in the city of Corinth, but we as the children of God have this treasure. And so I want us to examine what is Paul talking about when he mentions this treasure. Secondly, he says that this treasure is in jars of clay. And so we'll take just a few moments and look at what he is talking about, why he refers to, what is this referring to, this jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Of course, he's talking about us, but why does he call us jars of clay? And then the last part is where we're going to spend the most time this morning that I think will be a lot of help to us to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This treasure. First of all, we know from verse 7 that whatever this treasure is, it is a surpassing power. It is something that goes over and beyond. It is something that is tremendous. It is something that is great. It is something that is in us. God's placed it in us. It doesn't necessarily belong to us. It belongs to God, so it is from God, and He has put this power in us. It's interesting because Paul, in almost every letter that he writes the churches, somewhere will mention this power that we have in God. In the first chapter of Ephesians, he prays this prayer at the conclusion after kind of laying out who they are in Christ. He says, I am remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, some of the similar language that we read this morning, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And listen to this third part of His prayer. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. 
So Paul says that the treasure that we have is a surpassing power. Paul prays to the end for God's people that we would have an understanding of this power. We would recognize that it is in us. That we have something at work in us. Now that's certainly important as we live life because we tackle things that are greater than we are all the time. And so Paul says it is a surpassing power. But what exactly is it? Let's back up to verse 6 and see if we can get any further identity on what it is. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. This is a statement from the original creation of the world. At the very beginning, it says, Then God spoke and there was light. There was nothing but darkness. God spoke and the light was. And so, Paul is saying, Let the light shine out of darkness. He says, This same God that said that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't understand what that means, it sounds overwhelming, doesn't it? The language here is an an amazing set of words. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So certainly the treasure that God has placed within us, because He follows up, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. A part of the treasure that we have that is defined here is the knowledge of the glory of God. Isn't it a great thing, when you think about it, that God has given you, that God has called you, that God has opened your mind, that God has opened your heart to have a knowledge of the glory of God, to have some sense of understanding the greatness and the magnitude and the character of God. That our God is omnipotent, that our God is omniscient, that our God is omnipresent, that our God is holy that our God is good, that our God is wise, that our God is love, that our God is merciful, that our God is full of grace, that our God is truth. All these various components that people outside of those who know Christ know very little. They might know it to one degree or another, but they do not have the knowledge. God has not opened their hearts, opened their eyes to see and to know and to have the knowledge of the glory of God. And this glory of God, how it is revealed to us is through Jesus Christ. John, as he introduces his gospel, speaks about Jesus Christ came to reveal to us, to exegete, to open up who our God is. And so the treasure in part is this sense of the knowledge of the glory of God. Paul in chapter 3 is leading up to the statement that we read. So we're kind of working our way back. We're establishing this. God has given us a treasure. What is this treasure? Big picture, it is we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and it is in the face, in the person, in the essence, in the character of Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul is leading up to this, he gives a great deal of thought in chapter uh, 3 about this Old Covenant versus New Covenant. It is the Old Covenant given to Moses 
where the eyes were veiled, and we'll look at some of that in just a moment here, versus the new covenant. The old covenant, he says, is a ministry of death carved in letters on stone. The law was not evil, but the law was given to show us that we are sin. The law brought condemnation. That's the second part. It is a ministry of condemnation versus the new covenant being a ministry of righteousness. A ministry of death carved in letters on stones versus a ministry of the Spirit on tables of the human hearts, as he tells us in chapter 3. Jeremiah speaks prophesied of this new covenant. Back in Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel also addresses it in his prophecy. But kind of summarizing in the middle of this, Jeremiah says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. He's going to take the law of God, the knowledge of God, and who He is, and He's going to write it on our hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so Jeremiah is prophesying that there is a day coming when God is going to do this amazing thing. He is going to give us the knowledge of Himself. He is going to be our God, and we are going to be His people. He's going to write His truth upon our heart. He's going to inscribe on us this sense of who He is. Paul would say He is going to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This new covenant that he speaks about, that he identifies in chapter 3, has two primary points to it. If you want to look back in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now remember, we're trying to tie together the reality of verse 7 with everyday life. How does it impact you? Is there any impact on you? Does it change how you look at life, think about life, engage in life? To know that we have a treasure. And that treasure is a surpassing power. It is from God. It is not of our own doing. And it is the knowledge of the glory of God. Paul is going to tell us that this new covenant, this writing this truth upon our heart, placing it within us, he says there is freedom. In the past two or three years, I've been a Christian for 43 years, I've had the privilege of preaching the Scriptures for 40 years. But in these past few years, God has so impressed upon my heart and has been such a source of deep joy, this idea of freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ. It is such a common theme in Paul's writings. It is a freedom from the power of sin. If you've ever struggled with a sin, maybe it's a besetting sin, maybe it, I don't, I wouldn't even begin to, to name various sins, but you know your own heart, you know your own life, maybe it, in a sense of pride or lust or whatever it might be, and you know the power of sin. 
You know the battle that is yours when you engage in trying to overcome that sin and find freedom from it. I want you to know that in the power of God, in this light of the glory of God, that which He has placed within us, that God gives us this freedom from the power of sin. That sin by its very nature is not greater than the gospel. It is not greater than Christ. He that is in the world, Satan, is not greater than the Spirit of God that lives within us. In this new covenant truth, this glorious thing that God has given us, this treasure, there is freedom from the power of sin. There is freedom from the penalty of sin. I don't know about you, but I am thankful. I am thankful beyond words that God has delivered me from His wrath. I no longer have to be concerned about facing the wrath of God Almighty. When you read the Scriptures, you recognize the wrath of God is an awesome thing. It is a powerful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That is not necessarily something that's prevalent in our culture that we like to think about. But as we understand it, it heightens the rejoicing in our heart when we recognize the treasure that we have. This treasure is the freedom from the penalty of sin and someday will be the freedom from the very presence of sin. We read Isaiah 11. Such interesting language there. The child shall play at the hole of a cobra and all these sort of things. It's just, you know, you wonder, what all? What's he talking about here? You go on to chapter 25 and you'll read there that someday we shall be a part of a great feast and it shall take place on a mountain and on that mountain there shall be this truth that death is swallowed up. We shall no longer have to fear that. We shall be in the presence of God for all eternity. That is a part of this treasure. And that treasure is in us. It's in these jars of clay. What an incredible, incredible treasure. Secondly, not only is there freedom, he would say here, look at verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, I want to pick up and and kind of go into this a little bit more in just a moment. Beholding the glory of God. Let me just back up right now, maybe to kind of, if you're not familiar with this text. You remember the Old Testament, when Moses would go up on the mountain, he would go up there to receive from God revelation of how the nation was to operate. He was given the Ten Commandments when he was there. He was given how the tabernacle was to be built, how the priest, how people were to worship, how they were to come, all the various sacrifices and feast days, and all these various things that we know as the economy of the Old Testament people. It was given to him. He stood in the presence of God for many, many days, 40 days and 40 nights, and when he would come down from the mountain, there was such an aura about him, there was such a shine about him, that he would have to put a veil over his face, because people could not look upon that. He had a face that was veiled. People could not understand it. They could not look upon it. 
Paul is now taking that and helping us understand that without a work of God, that no man can look upon this truth. We'll see that in just a moment. So, Paul is saying here, God has lifted the veil. Light shining out of darkness, that whole theme. He has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We'll see how that happened in just a moment. But he lifts that veil back. And he says, beholding the glory of God, verse 18, chapter 3, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There is freedom in Christ. This treasure, a part of that treasure is freedom. And a part of that treasure is transformation. God is working to transform us into the image of His Son. It is where we're going to be. He's going to do that work completely in us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify, transform, sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. Romans chapter 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The treasure that we have is a transforming treasure. It is working constantly through a myriad of ways to transform us to look like Jesus Christ. What about the jars of clay? Or excuse me, how is it revealed to us? I'm sorry. How is this revealed to us? Let's go back up into chapter 3 again. Verses 14 and 15. He says, But their minds, talking now, the context is Old Testament Israel, the people who lived with Moses, but their minds, he says, were hardened. For to this very day, the time of Paul's writing, to this very day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. They cannot see Christ. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It is a work of grace. It is a work of grace that God does. When we turn to the Lord, when we come to know Christ in this sense of being regenerated by the hand and by the grace of God, God lifts the veil. If you can think back to the time when you were not a believer, and I don't know how long you've been saved, but when you just couldn't see truth. Have you ever spoken to someone, shared the gospel with someone that's a very intelligent person, very logical, very rational, I mean, just a good mind, and you start sharing the truth of the gospel with them, and it's like they just can't see it. They they don't recognize it for what it is, and it's frustrating because you think, Why can't you see this? Why do you deny that there's a God? You look at creation, why do you deny all these things? Why can't you see it? You're a smart person. Well, there's a veil over their heart. And it takes a work of grace to lift that veil that they might be able to see. It happens when we turn 
to the Lord. Let's go down to chapter 4. Portion that Adam read. Verse 2. He says, we've renounced the disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Almost the same wording, we have the treasure. God has lifted that veil. God has opened our eyes. God has given us life to believe, to repent, to have faith, to know Him. But not all are like that. Satan has blinded the minds of many people. And we need to recognize that this is a wonderful treasure. It is not a right that we have. It is a treasure of the grace of God that God has placed in us. Verse 5, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, with ourselves, your servants, for Christ's sake. For God said, let the light shine out of darkness. So the treasure that we have can simply be put like this. Christ in us, the hope of glory, is the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God. In that sense of the glory of God, we find here the gospel the new covenant language, this agreement that God has set out and promised to us. All of that, I believe, when Paul comes to this statement in verse 7 of chapter 4, it encompasses, this term treasure encompasses all of that great truth. Where does he put it? If you had something that profound, that wonderful, that great, where would you put it? Would you take it to a museum and put it behind glass somewhere to protect it? Would you find the nicest receptacle that you could think of to be able to hold it? Something to place it into? But God places it in jars of clay. The jars of clay is just simply a term that means something that is weak. You take a hammer and you hit a jar of clay and it breaks. You drop it and it can break. It's weak. It's made out of the, the, the mud, the dust, and, and all the various things that comprise it. It is something that is weak. Paul also, I think, is using this here, the jars of clay, to draw this unmistakable contrast between the treasure, the glory of God, and we, His people, these jars of clay. How many of you feel like a jar of clay sometimes? I think all of us can identify with that. I certainly can identify with that. I certainly, the older I've gotten, you would think I would be at a point where I would be much stronger than I used to be, but I still recognize incredible weaknesses that I have. Paul would say this as he opens up the letter, 2 Corinthians back in chapter 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been burdened beyond your strength? Maybe you have burdens you say, I can deal with it, I can handle it. But those burdens get greater and greater to the point that you're overwhelmed and you say, there is absolutely no way I can deal with this. I cannot keep this under control. I am losing. I am losing a battle. To the point that we would despair even of life. Something ever knocked you down so hard that you despaired of even life itself. Paul said, I am weak. In chapter 10, when the people would talk about Paul, here's how they would describe him. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Paul would say this about himself in an earlier letter to the Corinthians. I was with you in weakness and in fear. We don't often think about Paul being in fear. We don't think about Paul being weak. We don't think about Paul being depressed. We don't think about Paul being overwhelmed by anxiety. But when you read these letters to the church in Corinth, first and second letters we have recorded as Scripture, you will find that Paul battles these things. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, that's going to bring us to the last one. Let's go back to verse 7 again, chapter 4. We have this treasure. Hopefully we can identify what the treasure is. In jars of clay. Hopefully we see exactly what that's talking about. And at this point, we have a clear understanding of what Paul's saying. Now, why? Why did he take the treasure and deposit it in a jar of clay? To show, to demonstrate, to make known, to put on display. To show that the surpassing power that's in us belongs to God and not to us. That no man could mistake that Tim Valentine is doing whatever he is doing that is of any worth at all, that imitates Christ, that it is by my power. Because people would look at me and say, oh, I know Tim. It's not him that's doing that. There's something in him. Something's taking place. Something has happened. The surpassing power that I see evident in him doesn't belong to him. It belongs to something else, to someone else. We know it belongs to God. And he's given it to us. Listen to some of the statements that Paul will make. You can go back and read these if you want or make notations and read them more fully in context. I like to walk through some of these leading up to chapter 4 that I trust will illustrate to us and be a blessing to us. Indeed, chapter 2, verse 1. Or excuse me, chapter 2, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 9. Indeed. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that sentence of death, that overwhelming despairing of life, it was for a reason. Now remember, God's deposited the treasure in a jar of clay to show that the power belongs to Him and not to us. So he says, when God overwhelmed them with afflictions, even to the point they despaired of life, he says that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Every time you are overwhelmed to the point that you cannot deal with something and you turn to God, it is a part of the purpose of why God has brought that trial or affliction into your life, that you might fully and completely rest on Him. That you might lift up your voice and cry out to Him and say, God, I cannot do this. God, I cannot go forward. You must do these things for me. You must undertake. I cannot whip this sin I have tried and I find that I'm right back in the same mess that I find myself all the time. God, help me. We come to that throne of grace and we pour out our soul before Him, pleading with Him to give us help in time of need. It is helpful to us to know that we have a power within us that is greater than anything else. Paul says it causes us to rely on God. Also in chapter 1, he says in verses 20 through 22, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put also his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God establishes us. We sang this morning, our God will remain forever. Our God will never, never, we said it, Three or four times. Our God will never, never, never forsake us. Our God will establish us. Our God will cause us to persevere. I know Dan, your pastor, one of your pastors. I know as we have talked down through the years that he has been a believer in studying the scriptures, this concept of perseverance has been so deep in his soul. It's something that has been special in his heart. And I know he, so I know I've listened to his sermons up here a lot of times. So I know there's something that he has spoken to you about. But understand, it is God that causes us. It is God who establishes us to this end. Chapter 2, kind of an interesting portion of Scripture. Verses 14 through 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can do this? For we are not, like so many peddlers, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. We are commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. 
Here's the scene. Let me read a quote that I think just summarizes it very, very well. The metaphor introduced by Paul here is particularly graphic. The picture he conjures up is that of a Roman triumphal procession in which the victorious general led his captives as a public spectacle before the multitude of the onlookers. So the scene is here, the Roman soldier goes out into battle, he defeats the foe, and those whom he defeats, he now brings with him and he leads them in this triumphal procession. They are ones that he has captured, they're his captives. They walk through the streets. There's often things in the streets that when they mash them down, it lets off a fragrance. And so that's the picture. We don't see these things, but to the people who read in the first century church, this would be something very common to them. They'd understand exactly. So we as God's people are the ones who are captured. We are led in this triumphal procession by Christ. He says, we who were God's former enemies have now been overcome and taken captive by Him and are led and displayed by Him to the world. Not just on one passing occasion, but every day and everywhere. From justification to glorification, the redeemed sinner is on exhibition as a trophy of divine grace. It is only in Christ that God triumphs over us and exhibits us to the world as his captives, subdued by the power of mercy and grace. That's the picture. We're not leading the battle. We're not leading the procession. It is Christ who has conquered us through, is God who has conquered us through Christ. He gave himself. He redeemed us. We are his. And we are followers of him and By how He leads us, we become a fragrance to people all around us. A sweet-smelling aroma. That ought to be how our lives are. It's not particularly... It it isn't real complimentary of us, okay? It doesn't flatter us, but it paints the picture so well of how God leads us along. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. I love this language as well, thinking about the surpassing powers, not of us, but of God. And you show, he says, that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So Paul recognizes here that what we are able to do in ministry, what we are able to do in life, comes because we are a letter. Your life is being written by the Spirit of God. You're not writing your own story. You're a part of that story. But it is God who is writing the story of your life. It is God who is transforming you by His Spirit, through His Word, by grace. It is God who is writing this thing. And Paul says, you are an epistle. You are a letter written, not with ink, 
But by the living God, by the living Spirit, God is writing our life. He's designing. He's putting forth our life. This treasure we have is in a jar of clay to show clearly that the surpassing power is not of us, but of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a portion I'm sure you're familiar with if you've been a Christian for very long. Says, Paul says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, he'd been caught up into the third heaven, he had experienced things that very few men ever experience in this life. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he should, that it should leave me. But he said this, my Grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, for His glory, so that the power will be known clearly this from God. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what God is working in us. That's what this treasure is all about. That's why it is there. One man concluded it this way. But this power. He says, the conjunction but introduces the startling contrast between the splendor of which Paul has just been speaking and the poor vessels in which it is contained. The treasure in question is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There could be no contrast more striking than that between the greatness of divine glory and the frailty and unworthiness of the vessels in which it dwells and through which it is manifested to the world. It is one of the main purposes of this epistle to show that the immense discrepancy between the treasure and the vessel serves simply to attest that human weakness, listen to this carefully, to attest that human weakness presents no barrier to the purposes of God. You get that? Sometimes we say, man, I'm weak and I, God can't do anything through me. Yes, He can. This verse gives us that sense of hope that it is the power of God, the sufficiency of God, to attest that there's no human weakness that is a barrier to the divine purposes of God transforming us into the image of Christ. Very quickly, three takeaways that I found when I was reading down through here that kind of lodged in my mind. What does this verse produce in us? One, it produces hope. Paul would say in chapter 1, our hope for you is unshaken. He would say also in chapter 1, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope. Every day as we set out in life, we ought to remember God is my hope. You set out and failure is the day. You come to the end of the day and there's failure. Things are not the way they need to be in your home, and your relationships. We live in a messy world. I don't, I don't have to pretend that 
you know, we're all perfect, full of weakness. That weakness doesn't mean that God's power and glory cannot be shown through us and through our families. It gives us hope. Paul says, I am setting my hope squarely upon God. God is going to do this in me, through me, for his glory. There's a confidence. He would say in chapter 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We are confident that we can live the Christian life. We are confident that we can overcome sin. We are confident that we can make something right for the glory of God. Not because of us, but because God has saved us and God has given us the light of the glory of God, the knowledge of Him. God has the wisdom to help us navigate those nasty relationships. God has the wisdom to help us be wise stewards. God has the wisdom to help us overcome whatever it is that we are struggling with in this jar of clay. And we can be confident not cocky in ourselves, but confident in God and the power of God that He's given us as His children. And the last one is perseverance. He would say in chapter 4, we do not lose heart. I don't quit. I'm just not going to throw in the towel. I am not going to lose heart. It's easy to do easy in life to just say I'm tossing in the towel. I am tired of it. I'm tired of the struggle. I don't want it anymore. Paul says don't lose heart. God's given us this treasure. And he would conclude this fourth chapter with this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Don't walk out of here and say the battle's too great. I just, I can't win it. I'm just going to be like everybody else. I'm just going to go out there and forget about God and just live life however I want to. Don't do it. Don't do it. God has given you the knowledge of himself. God has put that treasure in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has done that for us. And he has done it so that he might receive all glory. That the surpassing power we would recognize is not of us, but of God. And not only do we see that, but by God's grace, the whole world can see that. Oh, I trust that this will be a help to you today. I trust it will be something that will set in your mind and you'll just kind of muddle over it and think about it. It will come to your mind in the morning and maybe you'll even be motivated to Memorize, that's not a real hard verse. Memorize it, think about it during the course of the day. Go to bed at night, think about it a little bit before you go to sleep. I just trust that God will use it. If you want to take the time and read through this second letter to the church at Corinth, 
you're going to find that this verse 7 of chapter 4 is an absolute key to understanding the message that Paul is bringing to them. So I trust it will land deeply in our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful privilege to be 